Welcome to the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Danny Kennedy, and I'm here to help you become the very best version of yourself. What's up, guys? Welcome back to this week's episode of the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast. Uh, it's an absolute honor today to be joined by M. Carey. Um, I've uh, recently just wrapped up reading her new book, which we'll touch about touch on in today's episode, The Girl Who Fell From The Sky, which was um, one of the more powerful books I've read. Um, and yeah, I feel honored to be sitting here with you and, and having a chat today. So welcome to the show, Em. Thanks for having me. And I didn't know you were finished. Yeah, buddy, I, oh, I cruise to it. I, <laughs> this is how good it is. I, I typically reader. I typically can't even read books. Like usually I'm, I'm an audio book guy. Mm-hmm. My attention span is not long mm-hmm. enough to sit there and read a book, but I got through it in like a couple of days. I couldn't, oh, couldn't put it, it down. I couldn't put it down. Um, welcome. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, you're, how long have you been in Melbourne for at the moment? You're I on, leave on tomorrow. Book, so it's book tour, two days. Is it? Yeah, on my book tour. It's been a quick trip, uh, but I love Melbourne, so it's great to be here. How has the, the last few weeks been, or last couple of weeks been with the launch of the book and the excitement of, um, of it coming out and people getting to, I guess, read and, and understand your, your story a bit better? Mm, it feels so bizarre, I think, because it's been, it's been a story that I've lived for nine years and it's been uh, a book that's been on my laptop for years. So mm-hmm. it's so wild that it's now out in the world and other people are reading it. But it's, it's a dream come true. I've always wanted to write a book, so just trying to soak it all up but yeah the, the last few weeks have been so crazy busy so I'm I feel like next week when I have a bit of a pause it's all going to sink in a bit it'll more. all sink in yeah this this conversation today is going to be so powerful for so many people listening um on perspective and gratitude and um and just how truly incredible life is but are you able to take us back if you're happy to and just give yeah. us a, a bit of a um give the listeners a bit of an idea of exactly what happened with your accident and, and um the whole process, the whole thing around when it happened. Yeah, so when I was 20, I went backpacking around Europe, as uh, many people do. And I'd always known that when we got to Switzerland, I wanted to skydive. I just thought that for years and years. I have no idea why. I'd never been to Switzerland. I just thought that's what I'm going to do. And I was so excited. I wasn't nervous at all. I Honestly, it didn't cross my mind the danger involved, which seems so silly now, but I was like, oh, she'll be right. Like, yeah. <laughs> it just didn't cross my mind. And so we went up in the helicopter and I was just buzzing. And during the free fall too, I, I loved it so much. Have you done it? No, I'm meant to be going in the next month or two. <laughs> what yeah. a time to have this chat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my partner was saying that to me the other day. So she's like, are you still doing it? I was like, yeah, well... Yeah. I'll let you know after Thursday, yeah. yeah don't let it deter you. <laughs> yeah, um, of course. So, yeah, when I – the free fall, it just felt incredible. It felt like flying, which sounds so dumb because you're literally plummeting. But it just felt so freeing and calming, which you wouldn't expect. Mm-hmm. But then I got a tap on my shoulder, which was from the instructor saying um, – that's when we were told to cross our arms over our chest because the parachute was going to be pulled. Okay. And I felt the tap and then I didn't feel the parachute be pulled. We didn't slow down. All I felt was my hair being ripped backwards. I was like, that's so weird that no one's ever warned me. <laughs> that your hair <laughs> that will get ripped just, out. Yeah, I was like, mm, weird. Um, but because I'd never done it before, I had nothing to compare it to. So I just kept waiting to slow down and I was yelling out to the instructor. But I thought because it, it's so loud with the mm-hmm. wind, I thought maybe he just can't hear me. So the panic didn't set in straight away? Not straight away. Yeah. But in saying that, this all happened in a minute. Yes. So, yeah. yeah. So it would have been very quick. But the closer we got to the ground, and again, that would have been a few seconds later, I soon realised that we were going far too fast and for far too long. And Because when you're that high in the sky, 
you don't really notice how fast you're moving because the ground is just so tiny below mm-hmm. you. But when you get closer, you can really tell the speed in which you're going. And so I got really, really scared and he still wasn't responding. So I thought we were for sure going to die. I didn't think it was possible to survive that. Um, and then we hit the ground and I landed on my stomach and because he's strapped to my back, he landed on my back. And the first thing, the, my very first thought was just like, what the fuck? Like I was in complete <laughs> shock because it was just so far-fetched of a concept that I was in a skydiving accident because it hadn't even slightly crossed my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the next thing I remember feeling was just so much pain. I've never felt anything like it. I didn't know where it was coming from, just my mm-hmm. whole body felt like it was on fire. And then the next thing I I was kind of because I was pinned down by the yeah. instructor, I was kind of moving my neck to see if anyone was around or where I was. But we were in the middle of the Swiss Alps and not where we were supposed to land. So there was no one around. So I thought, okay, I better get up and go and find help because at that stage I thought the instructor was dead. He survived thankfully, but he was he was unconscious, mm-hmm. so I just assumed or I knew he was really badly injured. So I thought, it's up to me to go and find help here. And it was in that moment when I tried to roll over to get the instructor off me and I tried to stand up that I realised I was completely paralysed from the waist down. And that was just such a bizarre feeling to not be able to do something that for 20 years I had done without a second thought. And I'd done it two minutes earlier, being yeah. able to move, and, and now not to be able to. It was just so confusing more than anything mm. Mm. and so in that moment you you said you felt obviously immense pain like where was the pain coming from I was it no more idea. of just like a full body yeah. just yeah it was it was unbearable but the funny thing is it, it seemed so all-encompassing and unbearable and then once I realized I was paralyzed the pain was still exactly the same but it it just didn't compete at all with the mental pain of realizing what had happened the it's yeah it's funny how something can seem so large and then if something i guess worse or Mm -hmm. there's something on top of that that's just swept under yeah yeah and so from that point there um obviously the the first person that 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 found or saw you was someone walking by was it or was it was it your best friend Gemma? yeah Yeah. so she had jumped just after us and she never wanted to go skydiving (laughs) i forced her into it so thank god it didn't happen to her but her instructor must have seen what happened. She didn't yep. know at the time, but because he landed where we landed. And so Gemma ran over to me and I was just saying, I can't move my legs. I can't feel my legs. And she just straight away went into action. And across the field somewhere, there were two people walking by. So she ran over to them, um, asked to use their phone. I'm sure she yelled and yeah. <laughs> grabbed their phone. <laughs> uh, and then gave it to her instructor to call for help. Wow. And so emergency uh, turns up. I'm assuming, yeah, you have no idea what anyone's saying either because you're in, in Switzerland, yeah. which would made it even yeah. more scary for you. That was really tricky because I, no, yeah, I had no idea what was going on. But first an ambulance and uh, police cars arrived and then as soon as they saw us, they were like, mm, we're going to need the helicopter. Yeah. <laughs> so we had to wait for a helicopter to come and take us to the hospital. And from that point, that moment there, um, you spent how, – how many months was it? Was it one month or – or longer that you spent in a hospital in, uh, in Switzerland? One month in Switzerland yep. because I, on my second surgery, I had to get, um, they had to get into my spine from the side. Yep. So they had to collapse my lung and you can't fly for a month after that. So I had wow. to stay over there. And then I went to a hospital in Sydney for three more months. Man. I mean, so I, I'm fortunate enough to have 
have read the book. And for everyone listening, anyone listening, the book is called The Girl Who Fell From The Sky and I'll have the links to everywhere you can get it in the show notes. For those that are watching, this is what the book looks like. And as I mentioned before, it's an absolutely incredible read. So I obviously have a really good understanding of, of the things that were kind of going through your head and the difficulties you faced over the next months um, after the accident. But able to give the audience an idea of where your head was at um, in in that initial month and, and I guess how that progressed and, and the things that led to, to that progression of starting to see things a little differently over the coming months. Yeah, so the first few weeks were really hard because I was just in a state of shock the entire time because it was such a contrast to go from this carefree girl travelling the world thinking I was meant to be in Rome the next day to suddenly being paralysed in a hospital bed and not being able to understand what was going on because I couldn't talk to anyone so I just was my brain was trying to catch up with my new reality so the first few weeks were really hard and I was on so many painkillers too that my mind was just so hazy and I was in a really bad way I kept trying to pull out all of the cords that were attached to me and so many times I tried to um, roll myself out of bed and I had to get sedated and handcuffed to the bed (laughs) so many times because I was like get me out of here Um, but then as I think as the painkillers got dulled down a bit and I was able to think more clearly, one day I just woke up while I was still in Switzerland and just had this epiphany and I have no idea why, but it was just so clear to me that what had happened had happened and mm-hmm. it could never be undone no matter how much I wanted it to. And if I was going to be paralysed, I saw that I had two options. I could be paralysed and sad about it and regret it for the rest of my life or I could be paralysed and try to create a fulfilling life regardless and see see what happened. In the book you you speak – I don't want to give away too much <laughs> as well. So Spoilers. If, yeah, I don't want to give away too much. But you do mention a lot around some of the incredible people that you encountered throughout your journey um, and a lot of them to this day you may have never seen again and, and some, some of them you don't even know what their actual names were. Mm-hmm. Before the accident, like what was your kind of – how important was, I guess, friendship and, and personal connection and stuff to you and, and how has that evolved throughout this whole experience for you? Mm, that's a great question. I, well, my best friend Gemma, who I went skydiving with, we had always kind of just been a pair and mm-hmm. did everything together and she's always been so, we've been so incredibly close. We've been friends since we were five. Um, so I thought it wasn't possible to get closer, but it's amazing what um, trauma and living through the same experience can do and how much that can bond you. Because in, those, in that first week and those hours where we were in the field, uh, she, yeah, she was the only person that could be there for me, that could speak to me, and it just bound us in a way that, yeah, can never be undone. And I also, as I went through hospital, I, I realised how important it is to, to have friends who are going through the same experience because once I got home from hospital, I didn't, I couldn't relate to any of my friends mm-hmm obviously in some ways, but not in what I was going through. And it was just so nice um, in hospital to be surrounded by people who were all going through their hardest times at the same time. Um, Yeah, it it was just really special. And obviously I wish that none of them had to go through that, but to have each other there as support was just so important. And I now realise why people join like mum clubs or have join a clubs for whatever it is that they're going through that phase in their life because yeah. it's just so special being able to relate to people instead of being able to tell someone and them not understand. Having that empathy is really important. On that topic of, I guess, 
resentment, um, which I'm assuming you've been through uh, so many different moments or uh, these periods of, of this journey where it would be super difficult to not feel that, have that feeling of resentment. Um, a, a client of mine and, and a guest of the show we had on not long ago, Lenny, he uh, he's a paraplegic. He he had a surgery on his on his spine, and, and the surgeon um, stuffed it up, and, oh, and he's paralyzed for the rest of his life. So, yeah. and and he's one of the most positive, amazing people I've, I've ever come across. And and that's something I've always found super intriguing is um, how he just doesn't have, to me anyway, it comes across he yeah. doesn't have any real feeling of resentment. Um, how do you deal with with those moments, and particularly early on when when you were still adjusting to your, I guess, your new life, mm-hmm. um, those feelings of resentment, and, and what was the what was the thought process to kind of move past that and see the positives or the other side of that? Yeah, well, for me, I've always felt really lucky that my accident wasn't something that I have to do every day, like a car accident. Mm-hmm. I, it was something that I, I can avoid forever if I want to, yeah. and also it was. I chose to skydive. I chose to do that knowing the risks, even though I didn't consider them. So I I feel glad that even though I guess the instructor was at fault in a way, I don't really feel like I have anyone to blame. Um, and I think it would be a lot harder to come to terms with, yeah, someone like a surgeon or someone who's directly at fault in yeah. that way. Um, so I've always felt lucky with that. But something which really helped my, um, I guess, my ability to see the positive is the fact that I was awake for the skydive. And obviously that was really traumatic at the time because I never got knocked unconscious. So I remember it so vividly. And I remember the feeling of realising I was paralysed. And I think that really helped me because I have the very acute memory of how it feels to think I had 10 seconds left to live. I can, rem- I can remember that clear as day. And I realised in that moment just how much I wanted to live, which seems ob- obvious, but I've never considered that before Mm -hmm. and just how many things I still wanted to do and just how much I would value my life if I somehow got to survive and so even though things were hard afterwards I constantly knew how lucky I was and that kind of over over road over road let's go with that over road yeah (laughs) over road uh the other emotions so that yeah it, it might seem like that was a negative thing but I think it was actually really helpful to be so aware for those moments Two things out of that. The first one <laughs> hit me. <laughs> the first one is: Have you actually ever spoken to to any any professional in the the field of, let's say, head trauma? Up to how it is even possible that you did not lose consciousness? Because that's one thing that just like I mean, there's many parts of your story that blow my mind, but that is one of them that just blows my mind. Like. Yeah, I don't even know how I'm trying yeah. to word this, but that's just unbelievable <laughs> that you did not lose consciousness yeah, at I all. Yeah, I have no idea. Uh, I don't think anyone knows. In in my head, this is how I've pictured that it went. <laughs> so no one's told me this. This is just me doing my <laughs> own private uh, investigating. So I was shorter than the instructor. He was really tall. And because he was unconscious, I didn't get to that. He, I didn't realise this at the time, but he had been strangled by the cords of the parachute as they came out. So he was unconscious the whole fall, which explains why he wasn't answering me. But because he was unconscious, I imagine that his body was like floppy. So his legs would have just been hanging down. And because he was really tall and I was awake, I would have been like curled up when we hit. And so his legs um, is what he, his injuries were. They were completely shattered. So I imagine that his legs took like the brunt of the fall. 
Right. And then we landed on me and then I kind of saved his fall in that way. So we kind of helped each other. Helped each other out. <laughs> so yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe his legs are what saved the day. But wow. No one's told me that. That's just what yeah. I imagine. And and in those seconds as you get towards, uh, towards the ground – um, you often hear about people saying when there's a near-death experience, that their light flashes before their eyes mm-hmm. or, or what kind of goes to their mind in that moment. What were those moments like for you? Um, like I said before, just that really deep sense of regret at mm-hmm. not valuing what I had when I had it and how much of a shame it was that I was only realising how much I wanted to live when it was too late. They were the, That was the main thing I was feeling. And then I was also thinking about how Gemma was going to have to find me splattered on the ground um, and I should have listened to her to not go skydiving. (laughs) And I was thinking about, I had a boyfriend at the time and I was thinking about him and my family and just, yeah. So it wasn't really a, my life flashed before my eyes. It was more a clarity of all the things that mattered to me. There's one uh, part of the book, um, which you had written in your journal, I believe was um, if I can, I must Mm -hmm. correct me if that's wrong. If you can, can, if you can, you must. Yes. Um, when you were writing that down, what in your head, what was the, the must? Like what was the thing that you were thinking that if you can, you must? Like what was the thing that you kind of envisioned yourself being able to do? Yeah, so I specifically meant if I can ever run again, I must. Running was my favourite thing pre-accident. I, I, it was when I felt like free and powerful and strong and it was something I had trained myself to be good at. And I, the morning of the accident, I had told myself I was going to go for a run through the Swiss Alps because it's the most beautiful place in the mm-hmm. world. And I was like, why, why Why? wouldn't I? And then when I woke up that day, I just couldn't be bothered, which is so fine. But a few days later when I was being told that I would never walk again, let alone ever run again, I was so angry at myself that I didn't use an opportunity. I didn't take an opportunity that was so readily available to me and now I was never going to have that opportunity again. And I was so mad at myself. And I never wanted to feel that um, regret again. Mm-hmm. So I wrote in, in my notes in my phone, if you can, you must. If I, yeah, if I can ever run again somehow, which didn't seem likely at that time, then I must remember this feeling of not being able to and do it for her. That's mm. amazing. To give everyone an idea as well, um, M has uh, has walked into the studio with me today and looks amazing and, and is moving around uh, amazingly. So... You have to explain to everyone, I guess, that process, a bit of a timeline, and you can kind of brush through it if you mm-hmm. like, but as to when you kind of um, had the realisation that it would be a possibility for you to, to maybe walk on your own um, two feet again one day and, and how that process looked from a physio standpoint and, I guess, a timeline around it. Yeah, so it started <laughs> with um, I, it, it, the movement came back really slowly. So first I could kind of like wriggle my toes and then it came into my feet and just over the months it like crept up my legs. And so in the beginning I – oh, because I broke my pelvis, I wasn't actually allowed to stand upright for so long because it, my pelvis was healing. It was healing, yeah. Um, but when I was able to, at first we had a walking frame, like one that I could fully lean my whole body weight onto and then I would kind of drag my feet below me. And then once I got a bit stronger, then I could go to two crutches um, or be on like this treadmill thing where you put in a harness and the yep. physios move your legs. Takes a bit of load off, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, every every kind of stage I got to, the physios, which were all so lovely, um, but they, they would warn me like, just so you know, this is as good as you're going to get. And also it's not a plausible way to actually get around in the outside world. Like it's far easier to just use a wheelchair, which mm-hmm. at that stage it was. Like a wheelchair was... 
Um, it was never something that I was nervous about. It just I just saw it as a form of freedom after being yeah. paralysed in a bed for so long and then being able to get in this chair and go anywhere I wanted to go. It was so, um, yeah, it was so freeing to me. Um, but, yeah, over the months, by the time I left hospital, which was about four months later, I could walk a few steps on my own without crutches, but I would predominantly use um, crutches just yeah. for balance. Because balance, which I didn't realise, were you use a lot of the feeling in your legs to balance and because I, I still don't have feeling from the waist down, which I didn't know was possible to mm. move and not feel. Um, so that, I'm assuming that's a, a sensory nerve, yeah. nervous system type thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which I just assumed it was all the same yeah. nerve, but yeah. the movement and the sensory yeah. is different. Uh, but yeah, without the, without the feeling balance was really tricky because I couldn't tell if my feet were below me, if they were in front of me. So I have to always look at where I'm going, Mm -hmm. but over so many years, I've just adapted to that now that my balance has improved, even though the feeling hasn't improved. Super interesting. So from a, obviously I'm, I'm a trainer and strength coach, so it, it intrigues me a lot. So in terms of the physical side of things, um, are you, the muscles still doing exactly the same thing. So let's say you're doing a physio movement and you're contracting and lengthening a muscle. Yeah. You're doing some form of resistance exercise. The muscles are still working exactly the same. The only difference for you at the moment is just that you don't have the actual feeling of what they're doing. Is that correct? Uh, in in a lot of muscles, but for me, I'm still my calves are still paralyzed. Okay. So I can't do a calf raise, yeah. which means I can't run or yeah. I can't jump any of those kind of things. Um, which is why I walk with a limp. And to be honest, the rest of the muscles in my legs, particularly my glutes, are a lot – the whole posterior chain really are a lot weaker. So even though they're working, they're not working as they used to. Yep. So I can strengthen them, but it's only up to a point Mm -hmm. really. Yeah, but my calves I can't do anything with. And has that meant that you've had to do a lot more um, strengthening work around their core? Is that something that's been a bigger focus or how does – what's – um, I'm just I, trying to think about like in terms of mechanically, like yeah. what areas you've needed to really strengthen up with the programming and the physio stuff that you've done um, to allow you to be able to move, I guess, freely without the, the use of the calves and whatnot. Yeah, I feel I did a lot of core work accidentally when uh-huh. I was just getting used to life in a wheelchair as well as my shoulders. Yep. There was a big focus on getting my shoulders strong to be able to transfer in yep. and out of bed and into the car. Um, but the, the main thing that... Um, has helped me is my quads. My quads have kind of, they're the strongest and they have, they've kind of like found a way to take the place of the other muscles. Mm -hmm. So instead of using my calf to push off, I'm using my quad and my hip flexor, which my hip flexor is always so tight to like lift up rather than push off. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So yeah, it's just my body has found like a different way to yet to adapt to those weaknesses. I'm sure you've probably done every mobility, um, Exercise under the sun for the hip flexor, but I'm going to send you a, a video right. of a really good one that you oh, can I start doing, that. which is um, which is awesome. What are the um, uh, currently like today? Sorry, if I can just forgot how to speak English <laughs> for a second there. Um, today, like, what are the values you kind of consciously feel like you live by? Oh well, I do try to live by that phrase: "If you can, you must." Mm-hmm. Because yeah, when I found that note in my phone so many years later. I realized that it related to so many things besides running. And I was like, past Emma was wise when she was in that hospital bed. I realized that, you know, we think sometimes that opportunities are going to hang around forever and not even in a morbid way. I don't mean we might well, we might run out of time at any moment, but just opportunities don't hang around forever. So I try to harness things um, if it's something that I desire to do rather than just putting it off 
for the future because that might mm-hmm. not come. So, yeah, I try to do that. And one of the one of the other main things that really changed for me was the my perspective of my body because as I was laying there in that field, I I just couldn't care less. Like it didn't cross my mind at all what my body looked like. Yeah, it was uh, all I wanted was um, to be able to move freely and. It just, yeah, I realised we put so much focus on the outside and even our physical abilities. When when you take away both of those things, you're still the exact same person inside because I, I just found it so fascinating when I was in the spinal ward and could only move half of my body that I, yeah, I wasn't half a person, which obviously. Yeah. Um, but, and I have so many friends who are quadriplegics who can't move anything from the neck down and they're it doesn't take away a fraction of who they are. Yep. And we all know this, but I, I just pondered it so deeply and it made me realise we're putting so much focus on the outside as well as our abilities rather than who we are inside, which sounds so cheesy, but, you know. <laughs> it's so true, though. Yeah. Powerful stuff. Uh, you mentioned, it again, just on the um, – if you can, you must. What's something that that long-term you would love to, to tick off, I guess, the bucket list physically – um, that, that you're capable of doing that you haven't done? So, yeah, for me, I, I always thought when I wrote this book that the end of the book would be some physical challenge, like a marathon or climbing Everest or something like that. Um, but as you would have read, there's a chapter in the book where I I had this moment when I was still paralysed and I was living in the hospital and I met this guy who had had his accident two years before me. And he just said in passing conversation, I'll never be happy unless I can walk again. And at the time, I think I had felt the same without realising because it seemed like the aim of the game was to get back on our feet. And when I heard it worded like that so matter-of-factly, I realised that it was such a risk to put all of our future eggs in one basket and Mm. all of our future joy on this one specific thing that probably wouldn't happen for us. And so I made a very conscious choice back then to not to not put all of my focus on my physical healing. I wanted to make sure that I was okay mentally, even if I didn't get any better than that. Even if I was in a wheelchair for the rest of my life, I wanted to make sure that I was okay and accepting of that. So even though I obviously put a lot of work in um, physically in the gym and physio and everything, mm-hmm. I... I always tried to appreciate where I was while I was there. And for that reason, I didn't want the the focus of the book, the end game, to be a big physical feat. Okay, yeah, feat. yeah, yeah. 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 Um, sure. But in saying that, I would love to, like I, I feel really compelled to use my legs to take me anywhere that they can because one thing I really did miss when I was in a wheelchair, one of my favourite things is like sitting on cliff edges, which is <laughs> random, <laughs> um, and watching the ocean and yeah. I... I, I love now going the places that I know I wouldn't have been able to go when I was in a wheelchair. So I want to just yeah climb mountains, sit on cliff edges around the world and even just going on sand. Like yeah. there's so many things that you don't think about um, that aren't accessible until you are in a wheelchair. So just, yeah, making the most of all of that. Who do you look to, if anyone at all or if anything at all, um for inspiration is there certain people or certain things that you still take inspiration from yeah um, at the moment my lifelong inspiration has been to reappear um I, I just I really look up to people who have been through hardship and have been able to come out not necessarily better for it but just who still see the world in a good way who haven't let it um let it ruin their 
yeah, they're sunny. Made the most the of what world. they still have. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Taria Pitt, Dylan, look up to Dylan. Yeah. Um, Lots of people, really. And even people who haven't necessarily been through a physical hardship like that, but just people who are um, like effervescent and sunny and um, bubbly. Like I really look up to people like that who can bring an infectious energy. Mm. Mm. I wanted to touch on, and, and um, I hope this doesn't come across bad at all, I promise, because no, I'm shocking it. at what? wording, <laughs> fucking everything. But um, whether it be throughout uh, what I've read throughout this book or, or the clients I've been fortunate enough to work with who are um, paralysed or who are in wheelchairs, it's off, something that often comes up is how they perceive the way that they are treated by others, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, and this doesn't necessarily have to be someone in a wheelchair. It could be anyone with any form of disability. Yeah. Um, for someone that is listening at the moment that's that's not in, in that position, that is able-bodied, able-bodied I, this sounds like a bad question, but like, what what is I guess the the best um, for someone like yourself? Like, what what is a way of communication um, from someone who is just trying to uh, I guess support you or show that their um, oh man, I can't even think what I'm trying to say or show their appreciation for I guess like how you go about life or yeah. what you've been able to do um, or for someone that has a disability the way they kind of continue to go yeah. about their life. What is a way to communicate that? That doesn't come across as, I guess... Condescending. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you just... You nailed it <laughs> in one word after I spent five fucking minutes <laughs> trying to figure that. it out. <laughs> uh, I think just treating people normally. And yeah. if, you know, I... So the thing I found fascinating is from the moment I was first in hospital, the day it happened, I was suddenly called inspiring. And I was like, I've done nothing but plummet today. <laughs> like, I've done nothing inspiring. And when I was in the hospital and in my wheelchair, just people would always say that you're so strong, you're so inspiring. And I was like... I know it's so well intended, yeah. but I, I hadn't done anything to earn that. And then, and then, which is also well intended, when I got back on my feet, people would say, oh, you're so inspiring and resilient for learning to walk again. And I'd be like, no, no. Again, that was just something that was out of my control. Because yeah. as you know, yeah. there's so many people who are so resilient, determined and everything else who haven't got back mm-hmm. up on their feet. So it definitely doesn't come down to that. Um but and and I say, I share this story in my book. I was out at um, like a bar with my friend Sam, who uses yep. a wheelchair. Yep. And this guy came up to him and just handed him a hundred dollar note. And I was like, I couldn't believe it when I read that yeah, bit. I was like, what the fuck? Yeah, and which might seem like a great thing, but <laughs> I instantly knew what was happening. But I spoke mm-hmm. to this guy and I was like, what's what's this for? And he said, oh, I just think he's so inspiring. And I was like, how do you know? I was like, this could be a really bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> like, why is he Why is he worthy of this $100 just because he's in a wheelchair? Anyway, there's so many examples of that. But I think the way that you can show support or if you do look up to someone is by saying, recognising the things that they are putting in effort to. So for, yeah, whether it's writing a book yeah. or achieving yeah. some physical goal or wh- whatever it is, things that they have put in effort to achieve rather than things that have just happened to them. So yes, someone's yeah. not inspiring for being in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. They're inspiring for the things they do as well as that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I know what you yeah. mean, yeah. <laughs> and, and I hope that didn't come across. I just kind of oh, wanted to, to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the topic of gratitude, something that yeah. I'm really big on, it's a massive part of my life now. I think everyone's interpretation of gratitude is a lot different and the way people show it or maybe don't show it is a lot different as well. Now, there is a part in the book that I'm just going to quickly visit that I wanted you to... um, live reading here. (laughs) Live reading here. If you don't mind, it's just one sentence. Um, The part was uh, the quote that you had read that said, life is... That's not it. How good is that? 
Just another spat one. out my water. Yeah. I tend to do this often. Great. So I can't find it now. Um, I'll know where it is. What was it about? It was around like... <laughs> fuck, I knew this would happen. Um, <laughs> the, part, the part where you, you touched on, I guess, your feeling around going from being in hospital and, and, and finding gratitude for absolutely everything, whether it be the sun coming through the window or a yeah. smile on someone's face, to then progressing in your life to where you are doing bigger things or things that, that you weren't able to do previously and then having the feeling of that maybe you've lost, lost mm. some sense of gratitude. And I think for a lot of people, when I first introduced gratitude to whether it's clients or people who consume my content, it, you know, you often get the kickback like, oh, I just don't feel the gratitude or I, I can write down the list but I don't feel the gratitude or I used to be really grateful for something but now because it's such a common occurrence, I don't feel as grateful for it. And it, it yeah. kind of like plays on people's minds. So you're able to explain a yeah. little around what you meant by that and how you approach it. Yeah, I can find it. Sorry about that. I know where it is. <laughs> it is somewhere. It's in moving on. <laughs> I even highlighted it. <laughs> Gratitude, I've learned, doesn't always look like tears of joy and an unwavering smile. Sometimes it looks like a regular day. For me, that's one of the most sincere forms of gratitude. The fact that I'm lucky enough to do something so often and with such ease that I forget to even be grateful for it. Was that the part? Mm. Was it? Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. <laughs> um, but yeah, something I found amazing was when, when I was paralysed and when I was in my wheelchair and writing that note to myself, I never thought... That, well, I thought if I ever got back on my feet, I would never, ever take that for granted. I thought mm. if I can ever walk again, no matter how wobbly it is, if I'm using crutches, anything, of course I'll never take that for granted because I, it was something that I wanted at that time with my whole being. And then it's fascinating that as time goes on, we can take things for granted that we imagined we never would. And that's just so human. Like we're all obviously so grateful to be alive and functioning and everything, but we don't necessarily stop to think about how incredible that is every second of every day um and I realized with time and obviously I've still most of the time so very aware and conscious of how lucky I am to be walking but I actually found it really special that as time went on I wasn't constantly thinking about that because that's how lucky I was to be able to walk as I said with such ease and so frequently that I I forgot to even be grateful for it yeah and that is another form of gratitude, I think, which doesn't sound like it. <laughs> no, I, I really resonated that with bit, with that bit, and I think so many people will. Um, yeah, that was a really powerful bit. Now, there's one more bit. I've actually you got this. it. I've got it this time, um, and I think again, this is really powerful for absolutely everyone listening. And the part said um, sometimes the thing that's the most difficult to do and the thing that's best for us are the very same thing. Mm-hmm. Are you able to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So. For me, and then that quote was about leaving hospital, which seems like it would be an exciting time. But mm-hmm. for me, I really didn't want to leave hospital because, as I said earlier, I was surrounded by people who were all going through the same thing and everything's so catered to wheelchairs in hospital. Life was um, easy. There were nurses on call and everything just went well. Everyone was very accepting of me and whatnot. And I knew that that wasn't going to be, ca- be the case in the real world. I knew I'd come up against more obstacles and also be constantly comparing my um my new reality to my past one when I was living where I used to live and seeing the same people and whatnot and so I really didn't want to leave um but obviously leaving hospital over time was a good thing (laughs) (laughs) it enabled me to uh create this new reality and experience the world in a different way and that's what I meant by sometimes the thing that's the hardest and the thing that we don't want to do and we resist 
is actually the thing that is the best for us overall. And there's been so many examples of that in my life and I'm sure everyone's life, but that was just one example of that. It's epic. I really, really um, resonate with that bit as well. And I think for so many people, it's, it's, it is... It's that giant leap or that step that that we all kind of know we should take, whether whatever it may like, whatever aspect of our life it may be in. Um, and if we just take it, we often find that that, as you said, the hardest things to do are typically the things that will, will make the biggest difference in our life. Yeah, and what's cool is the more you do that and you take that leap, you learn to trust yourself more mm-hmm. and that process more. So you're it more builds more momentum. Yeah, you're more willing to give it a go because you've seen the evidence of it working out in the past. Mm. What it, what's I guess what's next for you? Like, what are the things that you you know you've just obviously released a book and you should definitely take the time to actually uh, enjoy it and and um, experience it all. But what is there anything that you kind of uh, are looking to do? I guess or forward to doing over the next kind of five to ten years that that is something five bigger? to ten years, man. Maybe yeah, I'm man. not a forward thinker. It's, <laughs> it's a long time. Um, <laughs> I. I don't know, I I generally, and this is definitely being since the accident, but I don't tend to plan that thing things that far uh-huh. in advance because I I try to just be where I am and for now this is the thing that I've looked forward to for the last yeah, nine years, writing this book and finally having it out in the world and being able to connect with people in that way. So I'm trying to just be in that without looking to the next thing. But also I think I probably don't look forward because <laughs> I have experienced life-changing in, in a mm. single second and I think the trauma of that has maybe uh stayed with me more because I when I think of five years I'm like I won't be here in five years I don't know I just (laughs) I like I don't know where life will be or I will be in a certain time frame so maybe that's a negative thing to not have um big dreams in the future but I just am more of a go with the flow kind of person (laughs) epic well Look, I'm super grateful um, to have been able to connect with you uh, and also to, to learn about your um, experience and your journey. And the book is incredible. Uh, it's going to inspire so many people and um, you should be super proud of, of it as well. Thanks, um, thanks for reading yeah. it. Oh, absolute pleasure. And again, for everyone listening or, li- or watching, um, the book is The Girl Who Fell From The Sky. I'll have the links um, to everywhere that you can get it. Uh, did I say this morning that the um, – oh, wait, actually. Mm-hmm. So it also <laughs> went number one in nonfiction. Number one in nonfiction. In which Australia. is epic. That's yeah. number one. Yeah, number That's one. That's number yeah. one. That's Just awesome. And one. did I also say that it was coming out an audio book? Today. Today. Yesterday. Yesterday. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Which I recorded. So if you want to hear this voice for a really long time, <laughs> that is the place to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, as I said, I'll have the links to um, everywhere you can purchase that in the show notes. Um, but a big thank you to you um, for coming on and, and for everyone who's tuned in, which if you've enjoyed it, which I'm sure you have, um, we'd love for you to share it on your social media. Um, if you read the book, um, feel free to, to send and your feedback. I'm sure she'd love to hear oh, it. Oh, I love it. I even love knowing that you've highlighted parts in there. I want to see what you've highlighted. <laughs> yeah, it was so good. Honestly, I can't read for shit. Like I never, never actually physically read books anymore. So that's I'm uh, Thank that's you. Uh, awesome. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate it a lot. Thanks for having me. Pleasure.